Welcome to the program, listeners. You are listening to Let's Talk on WISR 680 AM 107.5 FM, the half hour we dedicate to talk to local organizations, businesses, nonprofits, and more. And today we are talking to the Butler Health System. Our guest is Melissa Maser. She is a neurology clinical coordinator at Butler Health System. Melissa, it's great to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So we've got a lot to get to today. And just as an FYI for listeners, if you cannot be around for the full half hour of our program, we do keep these online all the time. WISR680.com is the place to check that out. We are also now on Spotify, so you can open up your Spotify app and check out Let's Talk, and then you can join our conversation at any point as well. So brain health. Uh, you know, when we think of health, I think we, we think of, you know, being in shape and, you know, all of our bones and muscles feeling good. But the brain, arguably, that's, that's got to be one of the most important things about our health, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. The brain controls the entire body. We are nothing without our brain. It controls um, how we think, how we feel, how we move. And without our brains, we can lose function over time. And so we want to keep our brains as healthy as possible so we can have independent, long quality lives. So brain health, it sometimes I think for, for some folks feels like, well, what would I do to even do that? I know for heart health, I need to eat health. You know, I need to eat better and exercise and things like that. But brain health, how do we keep our brain healthy? So all the things that you do for heart health will benefit the brain as well. So all that exercise, nutrition, all of that, um, anything, anytime you're working to help your heart, you are helping your brain. There's a few things, though, that are very specific uh, to keep your brain healthy. And one is keeping active, physical activity. So... Um, s- Whatever it is, light activity, leisure activity, all that activity helps helps the brain. So next time you're vacuuming and you're feeling the chore, just you know, say to yourself, I'm helping my brain because uh, all that leisure, light activity helps the brain. So physical activity is directly correlated mm-hmm. to having improved brain health. Yes, yes, absolutely. And lots of studies on this. Uh, and exercise activity is the strongest preventative against things like dementia and cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease. So it's not foolproof, but there are lots of studies that show that people who are active are less likely to have cognitive impairment and dementia later in life. And I think when people will hear things like dementia, like Alzheimer's, they feel like maybe there's sort of this inevitable air to it, that there's nothing we can really do in order to stop it. But you're saying that we're starting to see some studies say, hey, there are some things that we can do overall to at least help us lessen the chances this occurs. Yes. And physical activity is one of them. And if you are serious about brain health, you're serious about doing everything possible to prevent dementia, getting active is the best thing that you can do. Another thing that is really good for the brain is socialization, Mm. keeping those uh, connections um, and poor social support is connected with heart disease and developing of brain diseases like stroke and dementia. So keeping that active dialogue. So text messaging um, doesn't get the job done. So (laughs) (laughs) social connection first face-to-face interaction Mm -hmm. so obviously you know we were coming off a time which is very rare in human history where we were lacking that human connection what have you seen 
uh, from the medical side that as folks and individuals are trying to get back into the swing of things where there may be some hesitation or maybe some people are just overall uncomfortable in social settings. Right. And I think from a brain standpoint, we have not yet seen those effects because mm. things like stroke and dementia take time to develop. So I don't know that we've seen the effects. We certainly are seeing the effects of mental health mm -hmm. um, and things with anxiety and depression. We're, we're certainly seeing that right now. So when it comes to brain health, how are we doing as a country collectively? Uh, because you do see reports of dementia and Alzheimer's. And is it because we're more aware of it or is it because this is becoming an issue? Oh, this is definitely becoming an issue. We're at the level that this is a public um, epidemic. Mm. So you know how we talk about the drug, uh, the drugs being an epidemic. Mm -hmm. Brain health is also an epidemic, but most people I think are unaware of it. And actually, if we continue on the trends that we are, three out of five Americans will develop brain disease like stroke and dementia. So we really need to turn this around. So as we, we focus on brain health, is there ways to, I guess, if you feel like you're trending in the wrong direction, can we get it back? So there are some studies that if you already have mild cognitive impairment, and that's where you're having some short-term memory loss, but you don't meet the full criteria for dementia, that um, getting physically active has, in some cases, prevented that from converting to a full-blown dementia. Mm. Of course, that doesn't always work, um, but, it, but we are seeing studies of, of good, good data. How about diet? Does diet impact our brain? Absolutely. So nutrition, the same good things that you would be eating for heart health would be for brain health as well. Um, the Mediterranean-like diets where you're eating, you know, less red meats, less sweets, less treats, and making good, um, you know, getting your produce, your fruits, your vegetables, the healthy fats, the healthy nuts, all of that makes a difference. And one of the interesting studies that came out within the last year uh, studied not just the food choices, but how it's processed and whether it's, you know, fully processed foods. Um, so those are things that come already pre-packaged, pre-made versus um, minimally processed and um, then the in-between processed. Mm. And there is a um, huge association that if we eliminate those highly processed foods that we have better brain health and less chance of dementia. So as we study the brain, uh, obviously this is something you do every day. You see the brain. Um, well, what are we learning about it? It's, it's, how, how has technology evolved for us to understand uh, the brain? So the brain is incredibly complex, and we learn, uh, we've learn we learned so much, but I still think there are things that we continue to learn. Um, as in the stroke arena, you know, one of our things are, are about emergency care on how can we stop the effects of a stroke. And those are things um, that we have. There's two major emergency treatments. One is uh, thrombolytic therapy, which is a medication that is a clot-busting drug that can break up the clot of the stroke. And the other one is a, a procedure where they can actually go and it's called a thrombectomy where they can pull the clot out mm. um, and that's with different types of strokes when we when we learn about strokes um, you are a lot of the things in, in terms of stroke prevention uh, again does that just circle back to the physical activity thing yeah so stroke prevention all the things we've talked about already plus looking at your medical health things like high blood pressure high cholesterol um, it, you know do you have diabetes have you had your blood pressure checked all of those things for medical health uh, avoiding smoking avoiding too much alcohol mm -hmm. o alcohol overuse can be associated with stroke risk as well 
well. Do genetics play a role in strokes? They do. Uh, family history of stroke uh, can play a role um, in it, but we don't really have control over you know who we're who we came from. Yeah. So uh, we try to focus on the things that we can. But if we do know, okay, grandfather had uh, a mini stroke or a stroke overall. If we're more aware of it, then we can kind of take some of these steps to go. Okay, well, I better make sure I watch my cholesterol and things like that. Absolutely. And the biggest risk would be your first degree um, relative. So like mother, father, brother, sister, children. Mm, Okay. Very Mm -hmm. interesting. Again, our guest today is Melissa Macer. She is with Butler Health System Neurology Clinical Coordinator. We're talking about brain health and having good brain health. So we talked about some of the risk factors uh, whenever it comes to brain health. Is there uh, anything else that uh, may be out there that in terms of, okay, we've got this trending in the wrong direction. What should we keep an eye on? So I think some of the other things, good sleep, making sure that you're getting good quality sleep, getting enough hours, and Mm. uh, so not too little, not too much sleep. And what's that number? So roughly around eight hours for the average person. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So getting good sleep. Yeah. How have we learned how much sleep is impacting brain health? So too little and too much is uh, can be associated with uh, worsening uh, brain health and cognitive function over time. And sleep apnea and sleep disorders can also affect the brain. It can cause high blood pressure, can cause memory loss. Uh, so if you, so sleep apnea symptoms would be heavy snoring at night, stopping breathing while you're sleeping, you're really sleepy during the day, having lots of fatigue during the day. Those are s- symptoms of sleep apnea and you probably should be tested. Yeah, so I, I guess, how, how do we know that we have sleep apnea? So a test, um, they do a sleep study test, and sometimes that can be done at home. Sometimes those are done in facilities, and um, they put monitors on you, um, and they just monitor how many times you stop breathing and the quality of your breathing. Mm. You mentioned too much sleep. Uh, how does that become a problem? So too much sleep, uh, at least in the studies, would be getting more than 12 hours at a mm. time. So, you know, sometimes we catch up on the weekends. That one time, uh, that's not really affecting. It's that chronic, you know, oversleeping more than 12 hours consistently uh, that can uh, affect the brain because you're you're not getting your quality time. You're not getting up. You're not getting, you're, you're not active. You're not having socialization because you're spending most of your time in bed. Very interesting. Melissa Macer is our guest uh, from Butler Health System Neurology Clinical Coordinator. You mentioned strokes uh, in terms of especially what we're knowing more about them, but Stroke identification seems to be a big one. So what are we looking at here? Absolutely. Stroke is a medical emergency because we do have those emergency treatments available. And so the mnemonic BFAST, so if you spell out BFAST, B-E-F-A-S-T, so sudden onset loss of balance, sudden onset loss of eye with your vision, sudden onset uh, facial drooping arm weakness, sudden onset arm weakness or leg weakness, sudden trouble with your speech, trouble talking, slurring your words, it's time to call 911. And I please call 911 and not try to drive yourself. Mm-hmm. Or call your primary doctor. Yeah. Just call 911. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Time is of the essence when we're talking stroke? Absolutely. The, there are time-based treatments that uh, clot-busting medication we talked about can only be used up to either three to four and a half hours. Um, and the, the other procedure can be up to 24 hours. But again, brain cells are dying so we don't really want to wait 24 hours when it comes to stroke recovery why is it that you see you know i think we see on the news you know maybe this celebrity had a stroke and then we see 
that person has recovered in six months and you hear of this celebrity who had a stroke and yet, you know, they may fade away from the public eye. How does stroke recovery work? So it all depends on the size of the stroke and the location of the stroke. So those play you know, key roles on how much damage affected the brain. Um, if you have any comorbidities that might be working against you, that can play a role. And honestly, a lot of times it has to deal with your, your mindset. I've seen people have severe strokes with huge deficits, have really good recoveries. Now, that's not always the case, mm-hmm. um, but putting the work in to do the rehabilitation um, and those who, you know, sometimes just say, oh, there's nothing I can do and then don't do rehab, they're, they're not going to do as well. So how does attitude play a factor in our brain health, like being a genuinely happy person? I'd say that affects your mental health, and then that can also affect your lifestyle choices. You know, if you're depressed, you're probably not making the best nutrition choices. That's, again, not always the case, Mm -hmm. but um, that can affect, you know, whether you're choosing to do exercise, choosing to get your good sleep, you know, choosing to do the things that are good for you. What about uh, when we were told reading is good for the brain? Do we know that? You know, this the evidence is not as good as the other things we've talked about, but there are some earlier things that reading can prevent cognitive um, impairment. If you only had to do one thing, I would do the exercise <laughs> because that has stronger evidence. Mm. So the reading studies are interesting and it, it is there, um, but it's not as strong as some of the other evidence. So it's interesting just because, you know, you'd assume, okay, I'm working my mind, I'm reading, you know, doing math, things like that. You're saying what we have found in studies is that physical exercise is more of a direct indicator of overall brain health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very yeah. interesting. So whenever we're looking at things like dementia with things like Alzheimer's, obviously these are very significant uh, health issues and concerns for individuals. What, what are we learning about uh, these diseases? You know, what is the latest in the dementia and Alzheimer's worlds? I think um, there's so much more to learn, and there are studies that we're trying to get to. It's not ready for the clinical world, but uh, trying to find genetic factors or some sort of lab testing to help guide uh, whether or not, you know, the specific type of dementia or will you get dementia. So that's still being studied. We're not at the quite ready to take that out to the everyday clinical world. Um, And the other big thing are these uh, new medications that... um, affect uh, basically the buildup of uh, like tau and some of these uh, things that you see on the brain. Uh, These medications um, aren't fully FDA approved yet. So so we're still studying, still learning. You can get these uh, new medications, but um, still still much to learn. The medical world is mm-hmm. still trying to figure things yes, out. Yes, uh, And I think I remember that being, this, this is something that's been in the news lately mm-hmm. just in regards mm-hmm. to FDA approval and yes, things like that. Yes. Very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. As you talk about the, uh, the brain health uh, epidemic, um, you know, is there, I don't know if it garners the attention that other things do. Do you think there's a reason as to why? Well, I don't 
I agree. It is definitely an epidemic. And I just, people don't necessarily see the results. And so unless they know someone who has had a stroke or they know someone who's had dementia, um, it's just not on people's radars mm -hmm. and they just don't see the impact. Um, but I think someone who has had someone with dementia, like this becomes very important to them when they have seen their loved ones lose memory over time. Um, so I just don't think we, we see it. And uh, some people like even today might be listening and say, well, you know, I've never seen it. I'm not worried about that. Um, but but just, just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean it's not a problem and it doesn't exist. So when we start, what are some of the symptoms that we notice in things like dementia and Alzheimer's? So Alzheimer's is one form of dementia, and there are others. And so uh, depending on the type of dementia, you might see different symptoms. But the most common, and in Alzheimer's dementia is the most common of all the dementias, um, you can start out with uh, short-term memory loss, forgetting things, um, that sort of thing. Um, mild cognitive impairment is sort of the the general term that we use for people who are having changes in their thinking, but they don't quite have the diagnosis of dementia. And typically dementia, you get that diagnosis when you start losing your activities of daily living, meaning some part of yourself you're not able to care for. They perhaps not pay the bills, not able to do the housework, not able you know, to safely cook or to you know, do your own self-care. Mm. Again, our guest is Melissa Maser from the Butler Health System. She's Neurology Clinical Coordinator at Butler Health System. The Neurology Department at Butler Health System, what are the, the services? What are the options for people? So um, the hospital itself, we are a primary stroke center. So we are equipped to, to take care of you for emergency strokes. And we have that clot-busting drug available. Comprehensive stroke centers do the thrombectomy. But uh, you, we, st we would still want you to come with us. We can uh, treat you and then send you out if you would need a thrombectomy procedure. Uh, our neurology clinic is open. And we do see all patients um, in the neurology clinic and provides services um, under that would be like procedures and testing like EEGs, EMGs for people with neurologic conditions. Mm. Very interesting. I think it's a very reassuring for individuals in this area, the fact that there is a fully functioning stroke center at Butler Health System. Mm. On Is there an average number that we see, uh, you know, in terms of stroke patients or is it a very, does it vary year to year? So for our community at our hospital, we see about 15 to 20 patients a month who are wow. having strokes and about 350 patients a year having strokes, plus all the others. So TIAs, which are mini strokes and people who come in with symptoms and end up not having permanent damage. So about 800 patients a year. What, how do we know? Are there symptoms of a mini stroke that are different than symptoms of a stroke? The symptoms are the same. Okay. Uh, the only difference uh, with a mini stroke, the body was able to push the clot out and restore blood flow before there was any permanent damage. Hmm, fascinating. Is there one more common than the other? So TIAs is sort of like the precursor that your body wants to have a full-blown stroke and is... Uh, we take it just as seriously um, that we want to put, you know, prevention measures in place. Mm. Um, but stroke uh, is a, there's two, actually two types of stroke. Uh, ischemic stroke accounts for 85% of strokes. That's the kind of stroke where um, you have 
absence of blood flow, typically due to a blood clot. And then hemorrhagic stroke is about 15% of strokes. And those are things like uh, bleeding in the brain from aneurysms and um, something called an AVM. So an aneurysm, is this a different type of stroke or is it its own separate entity? So an aneurysm um, will rupture and cause bleeding in the brain and is a hemorrhagic stroke. So they both fall into the category of stroke, um, but it's a totally different reason why and the treatment is different. Mm. Are there things that we can, is it, if someone, you know, when you're talking about an aneurysm, can we circle back to brain health as one of the reasons as to why we could potentially see one of those situations? So aneurysms can be from birth and you have no control over it just mm. the way you were born or they can develop over time due to high blood pressure um, and smoking. So those are all the same mm. things that we do to prevent ischemic stroke. So keeping your blood pressure in good control and stopping smoking. Now you mentioned smoking. That seems to be one of the things too that pops up time and time again as one of those health measures that if you can and stop it or not even start it in the first place is a big one overall for just our overall body's health. Oh, absolutely. Smoking is a, is a potent vasoconstrictor, which means it just clamps down all of those blood vessels and can cause damage to our heart, to our brains, to every part of our body um, and can cause definitely problems in addition to affecting the lungs and, you know, getting lung disease as well later on in life. And again, I think that's one of those situations when, again, we, we talked about physical exercise to be like, okay, my heart's feeling good and I'm feeling good. That also impacts the brain. Smoking, we know, okay, that damages your lungs. But as you said, that's going to have some other impacts on you as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It affects the brain and the heart and all of the blood vessels um, in the in the body. So you can end up with peripheral vascular disease, heart disease, and strokes. And again, speaking of strokes, uh, the number you mentioned earlier, you see about 12 to 15 patients a month dealing with a stroke, almost 350 on average uh, each year at Butler Health System, Butler Memorial Hospital. That seems like a fairly high number. Yes, and it's consistent with the numbers that we are seeing nationwide. And stroke is actually the you know the fifth leading cause of, of death, and it is the leading cause of disability uh, in the United States. Mm. So are we making improvements in that number? Are things getting better in regards to our ability to, I'll say, fight strokes, but I guess treat strokes? Yeah, we are seen, you know, stroke did move down the list. Uh, fortunately, stroke used to be the third leading cause of death. Um, it's moved down to five. So that's making some progress, but it still remains the leading cause of disability. Mm -hmm. What makes you encouraged about our future uh, of brain health uh, in terms of the treatments and, and the knowledge of overall us, overall us becoming healthier with our brains? I think awareness uh, is huge, and I think we've made a lot of progress. So the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association has all of these brain health resources and trying to get the word out, as are other organizations like the Alzheimer's um, Association, uh, the CDC. So I think getting that awareness out that brain health is important and what we need to do about it. And so I hope that this is beneficial. Mm -hmm. As people hear these stories, and, you know, I've noticed as I've gotten older, you know, health when I was 21 wasn't really a big concern, but then all of a sudden your knees start hurting, things like that. Um, are there anything that we can do to track our brain health in terms of just, okay, I'm here right now, 10 years from now, am I on the same baseline? Are, are we able to track our brain health overall? Are there things that you can see in the brain, I suppose, that, that can give us a better indication of where we are? 
So in studies, I think there are some opportunities, but that's not for prime time in the everyday clinical world. So we're typically just monitoring how we feel, how, um, you know, how we're thinking. Once patients have symptoms, there's some things that we can do, some, you know, testing that we do for those patients um, in the clinic. But the everyday person, there isn't anything specific. So again, it's just more of there are genetic things that are out of our control that we can't handle. But if we do the things, as you mentioned, physical activity, eating healthy, being social, those are things that we know can lead to better brain health. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a few other things that we didn't talk about today that is specific to the brain would be make sure you're protecting your head. You're wearing helmets if you're mm. riding a bike uh, to prevent head injuries. Hearing loss can be associated with memory loss. So keeping your hearing in check and hearing you can get that checked. Yeah. Uh, get that checked for sure. And wearing hearing devices. I have a someone in my family who um, has hearing loss, has hearing aids, but is trying to save money so doesn't wear them every day. So mm. uh, you got to wear the hearing aids uh, as well. Hopefully people can hear that message, by the way. If not, turn the radio <laughs> up and we're saying get your hearing uh, tested and yes. things like that. You mentioned head injuries. I think that's fascinating because it feels like this is also something we've learned a lot more about. You know, I'm a sports fan. And watch football, you watch basketball. Concussions really seem like that's something that we've been taking very, very seriously over the last couple of years. What have we made strides of in terms of, of monitoring concussions better? Absolutely. We've made so much progress here, recognizing that concussions can cause long-term brain damage if we are reintroducing injury very quickly. So um, I think every sports uh, agency and uh, high school, and they all have concussion protocols now to prevent further injury to the brain, that if someone has those symptoms, they're pulling out, making sure that they are in a good position before putting them back in, because it's the second impact, mm. you know, getting the second hit after uh, a concussion that can cause a lot of problems. And we have seen you know, those football players from the 1970s getting uh, something called CTE, which is a type of cognitive impairment uh, that lo looks and functions just like the other types of dementia. Mm. Um, so it can have long-term effects. So when we have that second concussion, because, you know, I, I'm always amazed at the timeline in terms of the evaluation period in the NFL at the high school level, things like that, mm -hmm. because we want to be safe. We want to be careful, especially with our young kids to make sure they come back in time. Do timelines differ uh, in regards to how an individual responds from a concussion? Can uh, one kid not pass a concussion protocol for two weeks and another person pass it in three days? Does that differ vary? How does that work? It does It does vary, and it's mostly based on uh, symptoms. And, you know, there's even some uh, brain experts out there who are saying the first concussion can be worrisome and mm. will actually um, suggest that, kids shouldn't play football or soccer or anything at all. And that's the most extreme, you know, version of, yeah. uh, you know, people's uh, experts opinion. Um, but wearing the helmets, following the safety protocols um, is the is the best thing. Are there symptoms we should look for in concussion? Because I know we talk about we focus a lot of it on sports, but there are some things in our day to day activities that all of a sudden what you thought was just a bump in the head may be a little bit more. What symptoms should we be on the lookout for? So things like uh, you just don't feel right. You have this brain fog. You can have blurred vision. Um, sometimes those folks can have uh, nausea, um, 
some memory loss. Just the brain just is slowed down. Mm, okay. Again, Melissa Maser is our guest from the Butler Health System. If folks are interested in learning more about brain health and things overall, what are some of the resources they can use? Uh, definitely check out the American Stroke Association. You could just Google that, American Stroke Association Brain Health. They've got tons of resources, lots of good information on how to keep yourself healthy. There's even articles on you know mindfulness, stress management, all all kinds of good stuff. Awesome stuff. And socialization, we say, is a very important part. So I'm glad you stopped in for our conversation in person today. Thank you. <laughs> if you missed any of our program, you can check it out online. WISR680.com is the place to take care of that. Our guest was Melissa Maser from the Butler Health System. Once again, thanks for stopping by. Thank you. I'm Tyler Frill. We appreciate you joining us on this version of Let's Talk. We'll talk to you next time.